Welcome to Mrs. G's Storytime. We are reading the book In My Father's House by Corey Ten Boom, and we have with permission of Light Trails Publishing and the Ten Boom Foundation. Now, before we start this, you might want to listen to the very first part of this. There is some sensitive um, things she talks about, uh, something that happened with a young man. You might want to, if you're listening to this with your children, you want, might want to just review that. And if you feel it's not appropriate, then you can skip over that. But um, Lord bless you as you listen to this. And may our hearts be uh, drawn closer to him. And we are on chapter 5, Winking Angels. Secrets are for children. And promises are like soap bubbles. Easy to make, easy to break. The first time I tried to keep a secret from Mama, my little deception was uncovered. I talked in my sleep. I was very young, perhaps eight or nine, and very flattered that Richard would ask me to go for a walk through the dunes. He was a nephew of our minister and quite grown up, a teenager. However, I was not quite prepared for the act of boyish curiosity, which surprised and shamed me at the same time. We had reached a valley where we could not be seen, and suddenly he pulled me close to him and started to do very strange things. Even without previous warnings from protective parents, I knew it was wrong. I pulled away from him, flushed with childish indignation, and stomped my feet. Richard, you stop that. Mama would think that that's dirty. Richard looked frightened, but defiant. She isn't here, and you mustn't tell. Mama isn't here, but Jesus is, and I'm sure he doesn't think it's right. Richard was defeated. He stopped immediately and said, Promise me never to tell anyone what I tried to do, especially your mother. I thought this over for a while. After all, he was Richard and very important person in my eyes. Oh, I guess so. I promise. As we walked back home, he told me some very nice stories and I forgot about the incident. At least I thought I forgot about it. The next day I was ill and had a fever. I talked about the walk in the dunes, but wasn't conscious of what I had said. After the fever was gone, Mama asked me what had happened with Richard. A promise is a promise, Mama, and I said I wouldn't tell anybody in the world. Corryman, never forget that Jesus is always with you. Every morning I ask him to keep you and all my children within his constant care. In the evening, I thank him that he sent his angels to guard you. Now you and I will pray together. I remember Mother folded her soft hands around mine when she prayed. I thought how wonderful it was that she asked Jesus to guard me. She prayed, Thank you, Jesus, that you never leave my Corey men alone. Thank you that you protected her during her walk on the dunes. Please lay your hand on Richard, show him how wrong he was, and that you are willing to make him a good, clean boy. How did she know about Richard? I wondered if mothers know everything. Oh, well, never mind. Jesus knows, and Mama knows, and everything is all right. Dutch... Mischief Makers. I was no little angel. Mischief was my middle name, and Dot, my cousin and best friend, was my willing partner. Her father, Uncle Arnold, was the usher and verger of St. Bavo, the magnificent Gothic cathedral which dominated the center of Harlem. Its cavernous interior provided endless hours of imaginary play, and in the banks are the pews, with their enclosed rows of seats shut off from the aisles by half-doors. A child could have a private house. We could be pirates, hiding in our caves, or storekeepers in our houses. We could run a school or own a sweet shop. The pulpit was out of bounds. We were not allowed to go there. It wasn't proper or respectful. It seemed quite awesome to a small child, because the chair in the pulpit 
doesn't stand on the ground. It is held up by the bronze wings of an eagle. The font in front of the pulpit is supported by three brass snakes, and that was enough to keep us away from being told. Our voices could echo in the stone interior, adding intrigue to our games. Sometimes Uncle Arnold would have to hush our exuberance. Children, children, there are graves beneath our feet. Step softly. The position of an usher carried the privilege of living within the cathedral grounds. Uncle Arnold's family had a cozy little house just off the side entrance to the church. I always loved going in through the narrow passageway surrounded by the beautiful blue Dutch tiles. Living within the cathedral didn't make Dot any holier. If I didn't dream up a prank, she would. We were in the same grade in school and usually walked together to our classes. I was comfortable with Dot because we were on the same level of academic achievement, which was towards the bottom of the class. Whenever we had difficulty with our homework, we asked Josen van Posten to help us. She was not only bright, but also owned a bicycle, a winning combination. Her father was a minister with a regular monthly income, but the earnings of a watchmaker went up and down like the weights on the grandfather clock. One morning, Dot called for me on the way to school, and she was unusually excited. Corey, come here. Look what I found. She handed me a dime, which was broken in half. The coin had probably been run over by a carriage, and the two pieces were wedged on a cobblestones, just waiting for a little girl to pick them up. A dime was a great deal of money to us. It could buy ten pieces of candy at the sweet shop. Such a rare and wonderful treat. We skipped off to school, neither one of us admitting that we thought we were going to do anything wrong, and ordered our candies from the jolly lady who owned the shop. Dot slipped the two parts of the dime to me, and I placed them on the counter, and then made a very fast retreat out the door. We were running towards school when we heard the bell of the shop door ring, and the owner called, Girls, girls, come back. I grabbed Dot's hand, and we ran a little faster, my feet having the usual problem of keeping up with my own momentum. We felt so guilty and for weeks avoided going by the candy store. The candy didn't taste very good either. And in later years, when I read this proverb, I thought about the childish caper. Bread of deceit is sweet to a man, but afterwards his mouth shall be filled with gravel. Proverbs 20:17. Can candy really taste like gravel? Another time, Dot and I made some solid snowballs and put them in our pockets. It was so cold they didn't melt, but formed hard balls just the right size for mittened hands to grasp and throw. We were walking through the Christstadt behind three dignified men who were loudly discussing their problems. I winked at Dot, and we reached into our pockets, drew out our ammunition, took aim, and fired. The top hats flew into the snowy street, and two sweet little girls raced to pick them up. Here you are, sir, I said with a serious face and very polite demeanor. As I brushed the snow carefully off the hat, Dot picked up the second hat and handed it to the one gentleman, who had a very bald, cold head. He fitted the hat on his head and said, Thank you, young ladies, as he looked around to see who the rascals were who committed such a crime. Hats off. Not all my episodes with hats went unpunished, however. The director of our school was a very strict man, not the type of person who would tolerate misbehavior from his students. Father had helped Mr. Van Leyden start the Christian Education Institution, and because of this assistance, we didn't pay to attend it, a fact which was a great help to the Ten Boom family. 
When the school was new, many of the disciplinary problems children came from other areas were sent there, and several times Mr. Van Laden had to send them back to the schools they had attended previously. I was shocked when a student was expelled. Just imagine how humiliating it was for the parents to have their child sent away from school for bad behavior. I must have been about 10 years old when this occurred. I sat at my desk, gazing out the window, watching the wind swirl the dust on the playground. I was thinking about the new hat Tante Jans had given me, a large blue and white sailor, which I hated just because it was a hat. The teacher stepped out of the room, and an idea flashed into my mind. Listen, everyone, I said to the class. I have a brilliant idea. Exactly at 2 o'clock, we'll all put on our hats and our caps. We can smuggle them under the desk so Mr. Van Ree won't see them. I've got to watch, and I'll give the sign. The room of 60 10-year-olds crackled with excitement, and I was the leader. The fact that I had a watch made me very important because I was the only one in the class who had one. Two o'clock arrived, and the classroom was very quiet. We were working on our arithmetic problems in silence, and the teacher looked from one to another, distrusting our unusually good behavior. I was sitting towards the front of the class, and after giving the signal, I took my hat from under the desk and put it on. I didn't hear a thing behind me. I looked around, and to my horror, I saw that no one else had the nerve to follow my example, except Jans Vexenborth, who sat at the back of the room. When our eyes returned to the teacher, he was staring right at me, furiously glaring from humorless eyes. There was terror in that atmosphere. Go to the headmaster at once, Corey Ten Boom, he commanded. Oh, no, not the headmaster. That was Mr. Van Laden, and he expelled students for infractions of rules. I slipped them behind my desk, pulling off my head as I left the room. In the hallway, I opened the coat closet and ducked in, hiding myself in a dark corner behind the coats. I didn't know how many miserable hours I spent there, but it seemed like an eternity before the bell rang and I ran out ahead of the rest of the students. I expected to be dismissed, just as the problem pupils from other schools had been. I thought of all the shame I would bring to Mama and Papa of all the things they would go through because of my misdeed, how I loved them. I thought of all the care they had given me, of the difficulties we had in the result of sickness and lack of money. We were such a close-knit family that we always shared joys and sorrows, and now this, dismissed from the school my father had helped organize. At the supper table that night, I was so quiet, Mama thought I was sick. I went upstairs early and crept into bed pulling the comforter under my chin. I told Nolly everything that had happened. Why don't you ask forgiveness of God, she suggested. I've done that, but do you think he will arrange it so that I won't be sent away from school? I asked Nolly the deep questions which were puzzling me, because she was almost 12. Certainly she would know all the answers. I don't know, Nolly replied, but you do remember that boring psalm that Papa read at the table, where every sixth or seventh verse were the same words. And then they cried unto the Lord in their trouble, and he saved them out of their distresses. Psalm 107.13 For the first time since the hat incident, I began to cheer up. Why couldn't we do the same? We cried unto the Lord and then fell asleep. The next morning, Noli shook me awake and told me her wonderful idea. We had a little monthly missionary magazine that I delivered to several people as my special work in evangelizing the world. Mr. Van Laden was one of the subscribers. Noli suggested, 
You must manage in some way to go to the headmaster and personally bring him the mission magazine for this month. It can't do any harm, and perhaps it will do some good. That morning, with my heart pounding right through my best school dress and a very pious expression on my face, I went to the headmaster's room and handed him the paper. He looked at it and then at me. The pause took a hundred years, and the silence hurt my ears. He didn't have much of a sense of humor, but I believe the corner of his mouth turned up just a little. He cleared his throat, tapped the desk with his pencil, and said, Cory Timboom, I don't think you have behaved as a very good Christian girl yesterday. That was all I ever heard about my crime. The Lord saved me from my distress. Mice in the Manuscript When I was about 12, I decided I wanted to be a writer. I curled up on my bed, a pad of paper on my lap, and wove a wonderful fantasy about the adventures of Noli, Josen, Dot, and all the Dot's brothers and sisters on a holiday without our parents. It was a beautiful story, filled with more adventures than Dickens and more vivid character sketches than Louise Malcott. How famous I would be. Betsy scattered my dreams. She came into the room and asked, What's that? It seemed quite obvious to me. It's a book I'm writing, I answered as smugly as a sister seven years younger could reply to the ridiculous question of a grown-up. Betsy seldom voiced any words of discouragement. But this time, she said, How foolish. You can't write a book. I just won't show anyone my book anymore, I thought. So I hid it in the attic and forgot the priceless manuscript for several months. When I remembered later to take the papers out of their secret niche, there was only one-tenth of this potentially bestseller left. The rest was eaten by the mice. I was so disappointed that I decided never to write a book again. The Shadow of His Wings My security was assured in many ways as a child. Every night I would go to the door of my room in my nightie and call out, Papa, I'm ready for bed. He would come up to my room and pray with me before I went to sleep. I can remember that he always took time with us, and he would tuck the blankets around my shoulders very carefully with his own characteristic precision. Then he would put his hand gently on my face and say, Sleep well, Corey. I love you. I would be very, very still because I thought that if I moved, I might lose the touch of his hand. I wanted to feel it until I fell asleep. Many years later, in a concentration camp in Germany, I sometimes remembered the feeling of my father's hand on my face. When I was lying beside Betsy on a wretched, dirty mattress in the dehumanizing prison, I would say, Oh, Lord, let me feel your hand upon me. May I creep under the shadow of your wings. In the midst of that suffering was my Heavenly Father's security. And I said, Oh, that I had wings like a dove, for then I would fly away and be at rest. Psalm 55, 6 Reach as high as you can. My desire to please my Papa was one of the basic motivations of my life. I remember when I was walking home from school and there was a very dirty wall I passed every day. It was full of flies and during the warm weather one of my games was to run my hand along the wall to try to catch a fly. When the challenge had been met, I would release it and try for the next catch. One day when I was busy with this messy game, I heard a familiar voice behind me. Now isn't this a joy to watch my youngest daughter here on the street? I was suddenly very embarrassed about how dirty I was, for Papa was so immaculate and well-dressed that I didn't dare put my hand in his. He never mentioned my appearance, 
just walked alongside chatting about the visit to Mrs. Debris and his talk with the servant girl about the Lord until we arrived inside the Bayer. I'm home, Cor, he had called to Mama. And then he turned to me and said, And I know, Corey, that you're going to wash your hands before you see your mother. Such a small thing, but I remember the shame of being so dirty in Papa's presence. We were always challenged to do our best. When Papa took a watch apart and put it back together again, it was a task he performed without regard to the owner's social status or wealth. He taught us that it was important what you think, or even what other people think, but what God thinks about the job you have done. When Nolly and I were teenagers, we decided to take sewing lessons. I made a blouse. It was a very careless job, with crooked seams and poorly fitted sleeves. I pulled it on, knowing that I looked very sloppy, but not really caring much until I saw Papa's face. Corey, the servant girl must be able to teach you how to scrub the floor, but your mother should teach you how to sew. When you spend your time and money on making something, it should be your best effort. Achievement and honesty were such basic ingredients in Papa's personality that there were times when he had to hide the giggles he disliked so much. One of the stories Mama told about him was, My husband is so honest that when the children were babies, he wouldn't allow me to give them a pacifier. No matter how loud or how long they cried, he would say, They think they're getting a drink. That is fooling a child to put something in his mouth, which is a lie. Mama would sigh with an amused resignation and say, So my babies never had a pacifier because my husband was so honest. Papa was honest about pain, too. Whenever we had to go to a dentist or a doctor, Papa would come along to comfort us. However, he would never say that we would not have pain. He said that if we had to have a tooth filled or pulled, that we must be brave and strong. Whenever it was possible, he went with us. Holding his hand gave us courage. If the doctor did need his assistance, his strong hand kept our hand or our head from moving. Perhaps it was wrong to tell this today in view of the permissive way in which many children are being raised. But we were disciplined without spanking. I cannot remember being spanked as a child, but there was no doubt in our family that we were to obey Father. His will was law and we all knew it. We never spoke about the line of authority in our home. It was simply understood. Father didn't have to stand up and say, I'm the head of this family. He just was. We never felt any desire to have it any other way because the love and the security of all our relationships were built upon the established fact that God was always with us and he had appointed Casper Tinboom in charge of the mansion in Harlem called the Bay A. Well, that's the end of Chapter 5 and next time it's going to be Chapter 6, Around the Oval Table. I love you, I'm praying for you, and bye-bye for now.